Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening. Good evening. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hello, Sean. Hello, Hui. Hello, Guy. Hey. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon account, and right now we have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation just to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife to show your support. So with that out of the way, Pui, what do you have for your first question? All right. My first question is from Martin. Hello from one of your dedicated listeners. Well, thank you, Martin, for being so dedicated and listening to so many of our episodes. My question concerns a router dropping bits. The router in question is a fairly new Triton TRA001 three and a quarter horsepower plunge router. Say that three times fast. Three times now, while making a fairly easy pass, the bit is dropped out. The first time it happened was while I was cutting a quarter inch deep rabbit on a half inch cherry panel. The bit cut a hole in the panel and ruined it as it fell straight down onto the floor. The two other times have been while cutting a three-eighths inch deep dado through some three-quarter inch maple plywood. Any advice would be welcome, and thanks for all the thoughtful and informed conversation about woodworking. So uh, Guy actually uh, addressed this question. I think it's uh, important to talk about it again in the past, but so one of the things that uh, Guy had mentioned when he had taken a similar okay. question to this. We had taken him an answer, getting him an easy one. I like that. That's my style. <laughs> <laughs> Was uh, dirt and debris within the collet or within the router that, that the collet fits onto? And the way these um, these collet, collets fit on is that they, they, they're – they're not perforated, but they have slots within them, and it's fairly flexible metal because those slots are cut into the cup of uh, of the collet. And so then you have a cone shape within the router that the collet fits into. And so when that gets screwed all together, that that squeezes in on that the slotted part of that collet and squeezes the router bit. If you've got some material in there that's uh, preventing it from closing up properly, uh, it can prevent uh, the or it can cause the router bit to s- to slip out as you're using it. So just go in there, check that, clean it out, and if that has happened, uh, you know that's or if you've checked that, guys, is there anything else that he might need to consider? Because I mean, it's very possible that that collet is maybe out of spec. Do you think that's a possibility? No. No? <laughs> I don't think the router bit's out of spec. It's easier to tighten something than it is to loosen it. Mm-hmm. So some people, just because they've been they've been in the situation before, we all have as woodworkers with routers. Mm-hmm. We tighten the bit too damn much, and you can bear it. You, you have to fight to get it out, off because yeah. the collet's so tight. Yeah. So... Some people tend not to tighten the collet enough is one of the things. Mm -hmm. You take that and then in combination with something like a big bit, like a rabbit bit, yeah, a rabbiting bit or a big chamfer bit, you're slinging a lot of weight Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of torque there. So if you've got a, you know, 
uh, a half inch by half inch rabbiting bit in there. That's a pretty beasty bit. And you spin that thing up, man, you better have that collet on really tight and it better be clean. Those are the first two things I would look for. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, uh, Sean. Um, well, I mean, outside of what you all said, the only things that I can think of, again, outside of what you all said, um, is dull bit, too deep of a cut. It would be the two things outside of tightening it and, and dirt and debris. Uh, that's the only two other things outside of what you all said that I can think would be the cause of this is too deep. Three eighths shouldn't be too deep. I don't know what size bit that he's using for that. Three eighths, if it's a new sharp bit, should be okay. It's still a pretty decent amount to take out in one pass if that's what he's taking out. So that's the only two of the things I can think of is too deep or dull bit. Now, I have heard before that if you put the the router bit in and you bottom the bit out in the collet, yeah, it can cause that problem. Now, I don't know why that is, but I have heard that before. I have too. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, You're the uh, scientist. Yeah, give us that formula for where the give bit us, should be placed. Give us, give us a, a reason why the physics of that would work where it would like. I don't know. I think maybe the reason is because when it bottoms out, it actually can't screw all the way down. So you want mm -hmm. the cone, you want the mm -hmm. cone to the cone on the collet to go all the way into the cone portion within the router, right? Because you've got, to, you know, kind of like a Morris taper, right? So you've got that part that goes in. And if, if you're bottoming out the router bit, my guess is that it might be hitting on the router bit before it actually hits on the expanding and contracting portion of the, of the collet. That that would be my guess as to why that's happening. All right. But it but it makes a lot of sense. I Have you guys ever seen? Yeah, right. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen any of these um these like uh, muscle chuck the quick change bits yes. or whatever? Yes. I've actually thought about getting a set of those. Are, are, Me too. Are they worth it or are they not really? Everything that I've read and have seen is they are absolutely worth it. Yeah. Okay. Have They're you ever worked with those guys? No, I'm sorry. I've, never worked. I've seen them. I almost bought one once, and for some reason, I I didn't pull the trigger. Same here. Because I've heard a lot about them too, but I I hadn't. Is it just because of the you don't need um, two wrenches? Wrench. You use an Allen uh, wrench. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, no. Go ahead. I I, I figured that it had, to, it had to do with just a <clears throat> Allen key, a single Allen key, as opposed to two wrenches. Right. Yeah. Okay. That was what sold me on it. Not having to fight with two wrenches and, or not fight, but use two wrenches, just use an Allen key and bloop, bloop. Yeah. On my router table, I like to use those offset wrenches. And those, those tend to work pretty well, but I, I don't know. I'll have to look more into these uh, quick change muscle chuck. I, I've seen a couple of guys that use them, a couple of woodworkers that use them. And uh, I see them used a lot in um, like CNC routers and whatnot. Yeah. They're, they're not cheap, but. I mean, it's something that, you know, oh, I'd wow. love to have. They're $70 a pop. Jeez. Yeah. And that's probably what stopped me from buying one. <laughs> that's probably what stopped me also. Yeah. You're like, well, I can use the two wrenches or $70. Nah, I'll just use the wrenches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Martin, hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight. I like guy, I generally like to go tight and then just give it a little extra quarter turn. A little extra oomph. A little oomph, yeah. Cool. All right. 
Guy, you've got the next question. I do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And people taking taking notes at home. I started this wrong. I should have passed it to Guy first instead of we. If we've we've always stuck to that, so that, I did it out of order this episode. I'm changing it up. Ooh. That's all right. Change is good. Getting That's close right. to that hundredth episode, got to change it up, keep it exciting. You know what I mean? Look, this is fresh. This is the new us. I'm going to we and then guys. <laughs> this is the hundredth episode, isn't it? No, 99. it's the 99th. You're always one off, guy. <laughs> now, to guy, I mean, look, to guy's credit, if you look at some podcasting apps, this does say episode 100 in them. But we had one episode that was a the very beginning ah, was a pilot and this and that. So yeah. All, All right. right. All right. All right. Well, this comes from Nicole, and she says, Hello. Hi. I recently discovered your podcast, and it has drastically improved my hour-long commute to and from work. I began making attempts for creating things with wood about a year and a half ago after wandering into a woodcraft and seeing all the beautiful exotic species in person. I made a few cutting boards and smaller items, but nearly gave up because my few feeble attempts at joinery completely, completely tanked. Join the club, Nicole. <laughs> I'm kind of a high-energy ADHD person with almost no attention span, and woodworking just wasn't working for me. Then I found wood turning, and I found it to be extremely satisfying, almost therapeutic. I still have a long ways to go, but I no longer feel completely incompetent and have made several decent items. I eventually hope to learn some joinery techniques and attempt some small furniture type items. Well, I'm glad to, glad to hear that, Nicole. So this is really her question. I recently purchased a JWBS 15 bandsaw and so far I've been very pleased with it. It has a large cast iron table along with cast iron wheels. The only thing it's missing is a break. But since it's my first bandsaw, I don't miss it. This particular model, however, is not carried by most of the woodworking stores, and very few people even mention it other than Sean. Is there a reason why the saw is not popular? The only issue I have is, is that I go through bandsaw blades like water. I typically use either a green wood blade or the Timberwolf 3 Ace 4 TPI blades and have not gotten more than a month of light use from any. Is this normal? No, it's not. <laughs> I cut a lot of, well, here, here's the meat. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> I cut a lot of rosewoods, ebony, and dense exotic turning blanks. <laughs> I considered getting a carbide blade, but they're upwards of $200 for my saw. Any thoughts, Nicole? So you're, you're, you kind of answered your own question there, Nicole. The dense hardwoods really can't take a toll on carbon steel blades. As far as the bandsaw goes, that Jet 15-inch is very similar to my Powermatic 15-inch. It's probably made you know, alongside of it. It's a good bandsaw. It's expensive. It's not a cheapie by any stretch of the imagination. The only thing my, my Powermatic has over that is the brake and some interconnects that, that work with the power. Other than that, it's very close to being the same saw because I've looked at that one before. Uh, it's a that's a very good saw. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't talk about it just because it, it is an expensive saw. Um, right. The only reason I talk about the Powermatic is because a I have one. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I wouldn't be you know it, it wouldn't even be part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, um, but as far as your bandsaw blades go, 
I do have a carbide blade and I went through a really bad experience. I had a very good experience and then they just went to hell in a handbasket where the Laguna resaw kings. Mm. I went through three of them. They kept breaking and I just got fed up with them and I won't buy them anymore. Then I mm. went to the Lennox Trimasters. Mm-hmm. Same damn thing. They kept breaking. Really? It's not like I'm tensioning the hell out of my wheel because mm. I really don't. But I've had a couple of those break a couple times. I've sent them back and they've, you know, welded them back for me. Now I'm getting like a generic one from my local company here that, that does my um, sharpening, sharpens my blades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I, no, I don't want to say what kind of blades they are. I think they're, they may be like sterling blades or something like that, but it was still, you know, like 160 or $170. It's 151 inch and it works really, really well. So mm. carbide is going to last. I guess the bottom line, Nicole, is I'd probably recommend getting a carbide blade, even if it is more money. It's more up front, but, you know, you can get it sharpened too, which is something you really don't want to do on a you know $30 carbon steel blade. Yeah. So what do you think about all this, Sean? So the first part of her question about why isn't that bandsaw as popular, and I think a lot of that has to do with marketing. Yeah. Um, you don't see it in stores. You don't see them marketing it. I had to, I found it by, you know, looking at what Jet's offering was because I know they make good power tools and I saw a couple online, but mainly it's just their marketing isn't as strong on that as they, as they push things like Powermatic and, and other brands more yeah. so than, than Jet, which it's a good mm-hmm. point. If you don't have people using it on social media, it's not going to sell. You don't have any marketing and stuff and they're not in stores and you have to go look for it. You know, you have other options in front of you. You're not going to pick it. So I think yeah. that's why it's a fantastic bandsaw. And I mean, it was legit. It's priced reasonably well compared to similar uh, bandsaws in that mm-hmm. same range. It is more than things like Grizzly and whatnot, but it's a great bandsaw. Um, yeah. It for sure would have been the one that I got if I didn't get this hammer. But yeah, and then onto the blade. Oh man, yeah. I, I mean, you're definitely going to get some longevity out of carbide for sure. Um, I have a carbide, and I cannot remember what brand it is. I don't, um, really, you have a carbide bandsaw blade? Yeah. What? what, huh. what no, I, what's I so surprising say, about that. There, we. I, I guess. <laughs> really, you have a bandsaw? No, a carbide blade. <laughs> I know. You know the. Blades are really expensive, and uh, yeah, look at Sean um, over here. They're cheap. Woo! Yeah, just Dang. say it, we. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean. I don't mean denigrate. <laughs> Listen, to this guy over here. Uh, yes, and matter of fact, I do have a car. I've had one f- since I got the hammer. I love it. It's, cuts great. I would recommend getting one, Nicole. Uh, you won't regret it. I just cannot remember the name of it, the brand that I went with, and I've had zero issues out of it. I cannot remember. I will try to remember. And if I do, I'll put it in the show notes, but most likely I still won't remember because I don't know where I bought it. I don't have the packaging, mm-hmm. but it was a, it was a great upgrade uh, for sure on bandsaw blades. Uh, I think I went with the one inch. I don't even know that it's pretty bad, but yeah, that's all that I had to add to this marketing and yes, go carbide tip. <laughs> so in the span of 
eight years that I've been eight, nine years. How long have I been? Nine years, nine years that I've been woodworking. I've broken three blades. And the first time I broke a blade, I didn't have a backup. So now whenever I buy a new blade, I just go ahead and order. a. Well, excuse me. The first time I broke the blade, I just ordered a backup. So I just ordered two blades for the same size, the three eighths or half inch. I can't remember. But I don't use a carbide blade. Now I'm jealous because you guys have carbide blades. And Sean, has Sean has one. Sean has one. Sean has a carbide blade. And I don't. No, I probably won't be getting a carbide blade anytime soon. Uh, I, one For one, I don't do as much resawing as Guy. I am cut mainly. I do do resawing, just not nearly as much as you do, Guy, because you do a lot more veneering and a lot more projects than I do. Maybe not as of late. But yeah, I, I, I've not used a carbide blade just because, I don't know, I just feel like I get so much life out of the Carter blades that I had been using that I don't see the need as of yet. I, I have a carbide blade, but I only put it on when I'm cutting veneer. I'll really? leave mine on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have a, um, I buy the steel blades from Highland Woodworking. Mm. I found they're the best. Okay. Okay. M- me being cheap, I'm getting my money's worth. I cut everything. I don't care what it is. Give it to me. I'll cut it with that carbide tip blade. <laughs> yeah. But tip- typically, well, I, and I don't know how much they are now because I hadn't bought blades in a while, but typically I'm paying anywhere from $23 to $30 for a blade for my... That's about right. A- again, for me to get two, three years out of a blade and spend 23 to $30 at a time. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. I so. would never get that long out of the blade, but the, the thing is when she's cutting, you know, dense mm-hmm. yep. exotics, mm-hmm. man, that, that carbide blade is going to make a huge difference. Yeah. And the ability just to resharpen it. Huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. How many sharpenings can you get out of a carbide tip bandsaw blade? Do you think? I don't know. I like my like my. I've got a, a, a forest woodworker that's twenty three years old now. Dang. And it's been sharpened maybe fifteen times. It's not an eighth inch anymore, Kurt. <laughs> but I, I really don't care. It, it still works fine. Yeah, I, I would imagine with a bandsaw you can get a good amount of the, the carbide is not super small on it there's a good no. amount of carbide on there they, they can sharpen them pretty quick yeah. yeah yeah so cool Well, you'll have to tell me what what the name of that carbide tip blade is that you own sean because i'm pretty sure you probably did your uh research and getting the most back for your buck because you're cheap uh-uh. i ain't uh, telling you nothing you go buy your own buddy oh come make, on make man. fun of my bandsaw blade <laughs> I, i'm not making fun or making fun of my fun. Yeah. Okay. It was just making fun of you, Sean. It was the. Uh, <laughs> it was the. Uh, what was the two that you said broke on you, guy? It was one of those two. Lennox and then Laguna. Yeah, get the Laguna. That's what I got. Right. Oh, guy? thanks. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. You know, the problem. The problem with Laguna, and I wasn't the only one. I know a couple other people here locally, and then Justin De Palma had the same problem. We were get everybody was getting these bandsaw blades. They wouldn't cut straight. They were cut like they were dull. When they huh. were brand new. Well, it turns out that they had a problem with their sharpening machine and they were cutting, they were uh, 
sharpening the blades at the wrong angle. Oh. So when you push wood through the blade, it veered. Huh. I can't remember which way, if it was left or right. But there's there's nothing you could do about it. It's just that you couldn't. It wasn't like drift. You could kind of, it just like it would just go off the off to the right, let's say. And it was very frustrating. Huh. Well, that's no good, especially on something that expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. Well, I think I'm going to move right along to myself. This is my first question from Matt in Alabama. Hey guys, I'm looking to purchase a better flush trim router bit. I'm comparing white side bits, UDFT5152 and the UDC9112. And for reference for people listening, the UDC9112 is their 7 8 diameter ultimate flush trim bit. It's the like the compression type up and down flute. And it has the top bearing and the bottom bearing. So it's their 7 8 larger diameter bit. Yeah. And the UD, UDFT5152 is a half inch up down compression with only the bearing on top so it's a smaller diameter it's a half inch versus the seven eighths what's the cutting uh, length is there a difference yes yes the, sorry the, go ahead <laughs> i was like did you want to do you know those numbers off the top of your head the um the quarter for the sorry i'm sorry man i'm sorry go ahead. you won't take this question i can go ahead and pass it over to you <laughs> my, my bad my bad i'm sorry go ahead that's all right <laughs> And actually, it's not an inch and a quarter for you, so I'm glad you didn't take it. No, it's uh, oh. an inch an inch and an eighth on the UDC9112 oh, and an inch and a half on the half inch, which is still a pretty good darn sized yeah. flush trim bit. So those are the two bits. We got a half inch with top bearing and then a seven eighths with the top and the bottom, a little bit shorter on the bigger one. And both of them have the Astro coating. Other than the bit diameter, cut length, and one having two bearings, what would make you choose one over the other if the bit diameter didn't matter? Do you think the 9112 would run cooler due to larger diameter? I plan on getting the quarter-inch compression flush trim bit for small curves. Thanks for all the real-world advice you give, Matt and in Alabama. Well, when I was reading this, I completely glossed over the part where he said he's going to be getting that quarter-inch compression flush trim bit for small curves. So there's some pros and cons for going with the larger and the smaller uh, diameter bit. So the first thing is the pros for going with the larger diameter bit with the top and the bottom bearing, which is that mm -hmm. UDC9112. Mm -hmm. More mass uh, and less likely to get as jumpy on grain variation. So it's going to be a little bit more stable. Between the two, probably nothing too crazy noticeable. Uh, one tidbit that I did read a while back about you know, should you use a larger diameter versus a smaller diameter flush trim bit is the larger the diameter, the shallower the angle of contact will be and less chance of a tear out. But we're dealing with two compression up down flush trim bits. So that's mm -hmm. probably not going to be an issue on the smaller one versus the larger one. You're not going to be that's not going to be that big of a concern between the two. So basically what I can determine the difference between these two and looking at them, if I were comparing the two would be if you don't need the full inch and a half cut capacity, my recommendation, if it were me, is to get the, the larger diameter bit with the top and the bottom bearing. I have this exact bit. I use it often. If I need a flush trim bit, I go and grab this bit. I like the larger, the larger mass. I like the ability to, if I'm running in at some crazy grain, just because you go with a an ultimate, like a, a, a compression up-down bit, doesn't mean you're not going to get tear out ever. There are right. going to be, there's going to be chances where you're going to get or opportunities to get tear out and they're going to be there no matter what. You can't avoid it hundred percent. So when that happens, 
the just raising this bit, flipping your piece over and referencing that bottom bearing mm-hmm. is a game changer for me. And that's why yeah. I, I grabbed this bit over the just the top bearing. Again, there is a difference in cut length. The bigger only has an inch and an eighth versus the inch and a half on the on the smaller half inch bit. Um, now, since you said you're going a quarter inch compression flush trim bit for small curves, the only pro for the smaller one being that you can fit in tighter tighter corners. But since you're going with the quarter inch compression flush trim bit, I personally would spend the extra money and get the larger flush trim bit. If you weren't going to get the quarter inch, that may have changed my mind a little bit. But that um, ultimate flush, the word ultimate, there's that word again, flush trim Mm -hmm. bit is a fantastic bit. And with it being Astro coated, it's going to help it stay cleaner and cooler longer. Um, The Astro coating is that stuff from um bits and bits right right yeah or bits yeah. bits bits mm-hmm. bits yeah and that's these that's the ones he's looking at is both of these being oh, astro coated yeah it does make a difference i mean i've had this bit for gosh a couple three years now and i've not cleaned it yet and it just it, it does a really good job of keeping it keeping it clean that's not to say you'll never have to clean it obviously but it's a fantastic bit uh, the astro coating is definitely worth the extra few dollars on the bit and my recommendation, just based off of what I just mentioned before, would be to go with the larger diameter over the smaller one if you can swing it. If not, that half inch is going to be a fantastic bit as well with it being a compression flush trim bit. It's going to treat you well. But just being able to reference both the top and the bottom bearing makes it worth it in my my mind of mm-hmm. not having – like wh- what do you do? you got to take it either, either flip your piece over and, and put the um, – you know, move stuff around. It's just easier. Raise the bit, flip it over and go to town instead of having to move templates and, or possibly get yeah. a second bit or whatever. So that, that's my vote. And Hui, what do you got to say on this matter here between those two? So I, I have this bit and I also have the infinity. What, what's this bit? bit? Uh, the, I'm sorry, the, um, ultimate trim combination router bit. Okay. UDC nine, one, one, two. It's a, it's a really good bit. And I would, if I had to choose between the two, I would get that one first. And because I think it's an all around better bit, it's not as specialized to get into tighter corners as that quarter inch bit. But yeah, I would probably get the ultimate trim combination bit first. I like having, just like you said there, I like having the bearing on top and bottom. Uh, Guy, I think you have the same bit, but I think you also have the smaller one too, don't you? Nope. Huh. I've got the seven eighths inch, what's it, inch and an eighth cutting length, top and bottom bearing light side bit. I've had it for a long time. I've had it sharpened once. What can I say? It's it's a great bit that that you guys haven't said. Like you guys mentioned, having the, the bearing at both the top and the bottom. I still follow the rules of pattern routing. Yeah. Which is, you know, go downhill and go with the grain. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do that, it's a lot easier to have a bearing on the top and bottom of the bit. Yep. Cool. And the fact that, that Matt says he's also getting that quarter inch compression flush trim bit for small curves it's a no brainer. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go from a quarter to a half. I'd go from a quarter and then step right up to this larger one. And that's going to give you the versatility. So yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, 
Uh, before our next question, we have a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shaper Tools, makers of Shaper Origin. Shaper Origin is an intuitive handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. Working with Origin is simple. You steer the Origin while it makes the necessary real-time adjustments to ensure clean, accurate results. With its easy-to-use touchscreen interface, you can quickly create designs on the spot or upload existing project plans. It's small enough that you can use the Origin in the shop or take it with you on the job site. With Origin, traditional workflows become easier and more reliable. Tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with the speed and precision. Learn more about Shaper Origin at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. As an added bonus, you can try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Upgrade your workshop today at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. All right, hui. What do you got for your second question? So this is an interesting question. This is from Ali at toolguide.dk. I believe he's from Denmark. Uh, great show. Love it. I have a small shop in Denmark. And recently I talked to a rep from Festool that told me not to sand my wood before all cutting is done as a small sand grits would make your blades dull. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> I've actually never heard this before. Um, I've, heard that, I've heard that drivel before. So I guess that's true. But for me, I don't sand before all cutting is done because I still have a bunch of cutting done uh, to do. And, um, you know, I, I, I sand right before I finish just because, you know, that's the process that I go through. So I guess I would agree with you know, not sanding before all the cutting is done, but I just can't imagine. I mean, yeah, I guess small sand grits will dull your blades, but I imagine the the wood would eventually dull your blades just as much if you continue cutting the wood as well. But I mean, I I'd never heard that before. Guy, wait, you've heard wait, that. Wait, before. Wait, yeah, and it's a joke. Uh, so you're telling me that sandpaper is harder than carbide <laughs> right i'm not telling you that but somebody's saying that <laughs> it's it's that's a bunch of hooey it's a bunch of baloney yeah so i guess that's something you've heard before and that's been something that yeah it's well let, let me let me let me let me put it to you another way okay mm -hmm. so this is the same person i will tell you whatever you do don't run plywood over your joiner because oh, it, yeah, yeah. it will dull the knives. <laughs> right. The glue so, will, will dull. Wait, wait, wait a second. You cut it with a circular saw blade, don't you? <laughs> I got carbide tips in my joiner. Yeah. You go through router bits. You put it through your yeah, you know, I mean, route. It's, oh, what it's, is it? Uh, rabbiting so, bit. It's so silly and stupid. <laughs> okay. Well, that, I'm that, happy. That, that guy, that that festival rep should should not be working at festival. <laughs> How's that? How's that for an answer? Oh, wonderful! <laughs> I mean, Sean, have you ever he heard anything like? I mean, no. I mean, but okay. I mean, just think about how much you would have to accumulate on the surface in order for it to make an impact. You're either you got piles of the stuff on your wood. You're not extracting it away while you're sanding. You're going to have more issues than dull blades because you're going to be having swirl marks and all kinds of sanding issues if you had that much grit left on the surface. Good point. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Look, you'd I, have to have some really, really bad sandpaper. Yeah, it had to fall apart in form, yeah. in, in large enough form in order for it to make an impact on the blade. Here, I mean, here's the thing. I would never sand before I cut anyway. It's always the last thing I do, but I wouldn't be scared to sand something like, oh, wait, it's the wrong size. Better throw it away. I got sanding grit in there. Let me get a new board. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, right. I wouldn't be concerned about it, but I wouldn't be sanding before I, or after, or sanding I, before I, I, cutting. I sand before I cut all the time. Well, not me. Not with the hand sander, but I use the uh, the uh, drum sander. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I can yeah. see that, but not. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I was looking at it from a hand sanding perspective. Like, better go up to my two twenty, get it finished ready, and then run it through the joiner. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I can see sander, that. just sander. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred mm-hmm. percent can see that. Yeah, and I've never had an issue after doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was kind of interesting to oh, to yeah. hear that. You know, that was something that was spread among the festival rep. But hey, you know what? Maybe I was wrong about my thought about it, but I just kind of thought it's like, nah, that seems kind of silly. How would you measure that impact on your blades? I mean, yeah, that, I that's what know. I want to know. Give us a, <laughs> give us a formula, Hui. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Equals MZ squared. Guy, I think we've... uh We've established that myth. So why don't we go ahead and go with uh, Guy's next question. This comes from Billy. It says, hey, guys, you've answered a few of my questions over the years, so I'm now running out of ways to say how awesome this podcast is. (laughs) I just want you all to know that it's been extremely insightful, helpful, inspirational, and motivational. Oh, yeah, and funny. Woodworking is a great stress reliever for me, and your podcast motivates me to keep at it. So thanks again. And everybody listening should take a take a note from Billy that flattery works. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't so the first my, question we've answered. Huh? No, yeah. <laughs> so my question today is about how to determine the weight bearing capacity. I thought this was an interesting question. My question today is about how to determine the weight bearing capacity of something you build. I generally don't build off plans. I find inspiration from photos online and then create my own design. But this sometimes means I'm deciding how much support to give certain pieces. For example, I recently completed an outdoor bench with planter boxes on either side. I really don't know, I really didn't know how much I needed to do to do to support the bench and the weight of those who might sit on it. It's 4.5 feet long, so it can fit up to three adults at a time. I'll describe what I did and send you some photos. Unfortunately, I don't have any photos here. Billy, Sean didn't send them to me. They're they're on the Instagram account if you want to see them. Okay. But if there are any rules of thumb, if there are any rules of thumb or resources you can share that would be helpful in determining the weight capacity for furniture builds, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks again for the awesome podcast, Billy. This is a really interesting question. Chairs, I'm not the right guy to ask that question, but a lot of other things, it's it's actually, it's fairly basic. What you're trying to do is transfer weight from the top of the piece all the way to the floor. Think of it like a foundation in a building if that makes sense. So let's say you've got um, a bench, right? 
and people are going to be sitting on this bench. You can support it just on the sides, or you can add supports to the middle of it. If it's short enough and the boards go sideways, so they'll be a little bit stronger, think like floor joists, mm-hmm. you can put more weight on it. A lot of this stuff, I mean, I deal with this kind of stuff every day because I get really poorly designed stuff given to me. And it's like, you know, is this going to work? Nope. And then they're going to say, well, just build it like it is. And I'll say, okay. And I build it like it is. And then I sit on it and it bends. I'm like, okay, now can I add extra support to it? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So... If my, the only rule of thumb I have regarding it, stuff like this, is if you can add support without without truly taking away the aesthetics of the piece and it mm-hmm. fits in with the design, add it. Yeah. I, I guess that's the best advice I can give. Now, I know, Hui, you've built some chairs. So yes. is Sean. I've built some chairs too, but it, no, mm-hmm. nothing I've designed myself. So mm-hmm. what what did they teach you at Greg Pennington School about weight and chairs? Well, you'd be quite surprised that, um, you know, these Windsor chairs are, are very spindly, as they say, mm-hmm. very, very thin. And it all has to do with the geometry and how they're joined together. So if you look at the bottom of like a uh, Windsor rocker, right? So it's not just the the legs that are splayed out, but they're actually joined together with, oh, what are they called? Not strapping, but cross bracing. Um, so there's, uh, so the if you take the front legs and the back legs, those are joined together with a strut, or I can't think of the name of it, but the, they're joined together. And then between those two are is another, strut or cross brace that's joined for, for those two. So, so it's all completely supported, uh, so that it doesn't allow any racking of those legs. Now the back of those chairs is very thin riven drawn white Oak, uh, spokes or spindles. So Travis, who was one of the instructors when I went to the Greg Pennington class, really freaked me out because I I finished the chair and I sat in it and he goes right behind me and he takes the crest rail and he rocks it back and forth while I'm sitting in. And he says, see, isn't that great? These things are so durable and flexible. And I I almost freaked out and then it's like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? Because you're using the correct materials for such a spindly chair. So in this case, I think, you know, what he's got here is a bench. So I would take the concept of making sure you have the proper cross bracing on uh, very similar to like the, the, the legs on a Windsor chair and, and just making sure that those are joined together. And like, like you said, Guy, uh, so long as it's not taking away from the aesthetic appeal of the chair, adding uh, corner brackets, whatever those, I, I can't think of the name. It's, it's, it, it eludes me right now, but I, I remember uh, reading about it in, what's his name? Now I can't remember his name. <laughs> uh, the wow. chairmaker, uh, Jeff. Jeff oh, Miller. 
Jeff Miller. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, Jeff you know Miller. what they say causes a lot of short-term memory, memory loss, don't you, Wee? Mm-mm. You're smoking a lot of weed down there in Alabama, aren't you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> About a pound. Yeah. Yeah, CBD. Do they, allow, do they allow that for government workers like yourself? No, not what? at all. I get drug tested. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> we digress. That took a turn. Um, yeah, we took a turn, a turn for the worse. But yeah, any any point that you can add a little bit more support, uh, I, I would do, you know, whether it be corner brackets or chunky but tenants. There, but can you think of any like rules of thumb? I'm doing air quotes here that that you can apply. I really don't know any because like I said, I've just always just built stuff. And if it, if it can't support weight, you know, like benches and things like that, never really chairs, but mm-hmm. any benches like that, I just, I just add, I add supports if it doesn't feel like it's going to support. Yeah. Yep. Is there like a rule of thumb? I don't know a rule of thumb. I mean, other than your common, you know, tenon construction rules, like a third, a third, a third, or a half a quarter, a quarter in terms of your tenon sizes to make sure that, you know, you're getting enough um, glue surface. And that's all I can think of. Sean? So I would make sure to scale the pieces according to how big, well, let me say this, the thickness of the pieces. In other words, you got four and a half feet long you got to kind of start with thinking, okay, how thick are the components going to be? How thick are the legs? How thick are the aprons? Any, any cross support? You're going to need to scale those up accordingly so that you're, you're not using, you know, three quarter inch boards on something that's four and a half feet long. You're going to need to start with some thicker lumber. Again, this is all, for me, it's just a gut feeling on stuff. So if I was doing something that's four and a half feet long, that's out, outdoor bench, I'd start with the, you know, two by material, um, yeah. maybe, and maybe, and I'd probably try to keep it as thick as possible, uh, maybe even go thicker than two by material. But I think that I would make sure to make the components thick enough to support that weight. And then when you get to a certain point, again, it's a gut feeling. When you have reached something that's that's four and a half feet wide or something wide enough to where you're not going to feel comfortable sitting in the middle without without noticing a big sag, then I would start to look at, okay, maybe now I need to put some additional support in the center. It's just a gut feeling, I think, um, and not to—I don't have too much to add to what they've said. Um, make sure your material's thick enough. Make sure that when you know, if you do have something like like I built those bar stools, if you have a chair, a seat that is sitting directly on top, the end grain of legs or something on on legs that mm-hmm. that transfers that weight immediately down to the floor, you can get away with less. Um, but it just depends on how you're distributing that weight down to the ground. Do you have—is it sitting on riser blocks? Is it sitting? on aprons that are connected to the side of the legs versus on top of the legs. I mean, you can, depending on how it's constructed, you can get away with, with less, but it's always, I over-engineer stuff when I'm building it and know that I'm going to be sitting on it. I still sit on those bar stools. I'm like, man, is this going to break or what? But so far it hasn't. (laughs) Um, But I, I tend to, when I make something to sit on, especially a bench, I go on the chunky side of, of components. I square them up. And I go on the chunkier side and then I go with the thicker tenons. And then at a certain point, if it feels like, okay, we're at four and a half feet, I probably wouldn't, I would maybe think about a, you know, some more support in the center. I may not, but if I were going six feet, something like that, I'm going to be looking at adding additional legs in the center, something like that. And there's a, what is it called? A saggy later for, yeah. for uh, bookshelves? Is there something for yeah. 
Can you use it for I that? I don't know. But the, we, the another question Billy asked was, you know, if there's any resources that we knew of, and and um, we brought up a good good name there, which is Jeff Miller. He's written a couple books about chair design and, and just design in general. I'm sure he's he's got some pearls of wisdom regarding weight and transfer of weight and stuff like that in his book. So might want to check those out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys think of any other resources that we can tell Billy about? Googling. I mean, that's the only thing I can think. Uh, this is such a hard topic. That's not for th- the three of us other than that book, maybe, but just, you know, looking for. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting question. <laughs> woodworking books for that, that topic. Yeah. Woodworking for dummies. Yeah. By the way, they're called stretchers. I couldn't na- think wow. of a name. Really? Jeez. Yeah, they're just called stretchers. I'm sitting there between the legs. You couldn't think of the word stretchers? I, I don't know why. <laughs> I know why. You're baked. I was yeah, sitting there thinking, sure. I wonder if he was wondering, wondering if that word is stretchers. No, surely not. So I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah. You should have said it. So who's got the... Is it the last I, question? Yep. No. I got the last question. Yeah. 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 All right. So it's on to me. This is a fun one. Um, this is from Dan. I'm building a console style liquor cabinet that will have a walnut slab top. The slab is one and a half inches thick, 60 inches long, 16 inches wide. I'll be using an oil finish and I'm wondering whether I should apply the oil finish to both the top and the bottom of the slab or if just finishing the top and the edges is enough. It's my first time working with the slab and I don't want to screw it up. Thanks for the great show, Dan. This is interesting because it, it's always been my impression that you've always finish at least put a coat on the bottom to help mm-hmm. balance the moisture vapor exchange um, mm-hmm. to help prevent the wood from potentially warping or whatever. So I've always just finished both sides, at least, at least one coat on the bottom. I never go with three, four, five coats on the bottom. I just put one coat and I'm done. Um, that's always been the rule of thumb that I've, I have followed. Now mm-hmm. I did read a, a, an article from Bob Flexner who has all kinds of finishing books, who thinks that it is a myth that you have to finish both sides to prevent warping. And I will link to this article in the show notes, but Bob doesn't seem to think that you need to. Now I'm not going to argue with Bob. I, I, think, I think that depends on the, the, the tabletop. And I'll get into that in my part of the answer. Sorry. Okay. So, I, I mean, if you're ever going to see the bottom of it, I would put a, at least one coat. I mean, I, there's no reason not to put a coat on it. I mean, it's not going to hurt anything to put a coat on it. It can only potentially hurt something to not put a coat on it. So I would recommend putting a coat, at least a coat on the bottom, even if it's a thick slab or whatnot. Um, but just the last thing is is, is um, your only. it's not going to hurt anything to do it. I would do it. I would recommend do it. You're not going to hurt anything by doing it. Um, I do it. So there's a lot of do it's and I'm going to pass it to the guy because it sounds like he's got something juicy, but I will include this article from Bob Flexner in the show notes for you all to consume. Go ahead, guy. Yeah. So, so let's say you've got a tabletop and it's made, it's a 42 inch wide tabletop, six foot, six feet long, mm-hmm. you know, a, a fairly standard size dining room table and it's the top is made up of multiple boards that are all glued together so you've got 
glue holding them together, right? Mm -hmm. Then you take that tabletop and you screw it down or secure it somehow to an apron that goes around all the edges, right? Mm -hmm. I would agree that with Bob Flexner on on a table like that, it probably doesn't need a whole lot of finish or any underneath mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you're confining the table to the apron. You're securing it to it. Now, wood, if it wants to move enough, it's going to flex and it could pull those screws right out. We all know that. Right. But I think in some situations, you're going to be okay. Now, slabs are a completely different story. I'm not an expert on slabs, but the last three years, you know, the last three years, I've worked with a ton of slabs. I work with slabs all the time now. And I'll tell you what, we do everything we can to try to keep those things flat because they curl and bow and twist and warp and do all kinds of funny stuff. So what we actually do to them, we not only finish them both sides, uh, we also route grooves in them and put the, you know, the iron angle iron things underneath, which I think is worthless, but we do that too. Mm -hmm. And we screw it into, you know, metal bases. Yeah. And we, they still work. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen photos of it. Yeah. I mean, with the slab, like I said, finish. Do yourself a favor and finish both sides. You don't have to, you know, on the underneath. It doesn't have to be silky smooth and soft to the touch. <laughs> Just slap it, you know, a, a coat on there. Give it a rough sand. Put another coat on. Give it a rough sand. You know, whatever, whatever you're going to do. But do yourself a favor and put some on the bottom. What you're really trying to do is, like Sean said at the at the beginning of this, which is where the moisture wicks away from both the top and bottom at the same rate. That's really what you're looking for. Yeah. We, while I completely agree with you guy that if you have an apron that's going all the way around for a table or even a console in this, this situation, you've got a, a panel glue up that's made up of several boards. Then, you know, so long as it's properly supported, probably don't need finish on the bottom. That being said, for dining tables, tables, even a console, like in this situation, just because a part of it's going to be visible, uh, you know, if you were to look underneath it, you know, that that's exposed Nobody past looks underneath tables. tables. Oh, I do. You, you touch, you know, you do. <laughs> but, but the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that I, I, I still put at least a coat of finish on the bottom. Yeah. And I think in this case, I would probably, especially considering that it's a walnut slab. Let me ask you this. Let's let's look at it in a different light. Let's not talk about a table for a second. I'm going to go into weeds just a little bit. Sure. Let's say you're building a a chest of drawers Mm -hmm. and the sides are solid panels. Do you put finish on the inside of those panels? No. Okay. So Bob Flexner Flexner is correct. Yes. So... Let me maybe to help fill this in a little bit here. I I didn't read too much of this, but he said, and I'm paraphrasing, and I will link. This is a really interesting read. Um, you know, finishes are supposed to help slow the moisture exchange, but his argument is 
the finishes that we use and the thicknesses that we use are not going to do much to stop the moisture exchange. He's saying, unless you use something like an eighth inch epoxy resin, that comes pretty close to completely stopping any moisture exchange. It doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter as much because the finishes we use are so thin that it's not going to make a difference. So that's Mm -hmm. his argument of why we, he says it's more important to, to choose the wood that has been dried correctly, choose the right grain um, for what you're wanting you have and make sure that and on and on and on. It's a great read. I I don't think that, you know, I I don't think anybody here was trying to say that, you know, slapping a couple coats of an oil finish on it is going to give you 100% mitigation against the, 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 the release of moisture. That's not what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. I was just saying that the release of moisture is going to be more even. Yeah. That's that's the conventional wisdom anyways. Yeah. But I can see in some cases where you, you don't need to put finish on both sides. You know, and, yeah. and a good example is like the, the chest of drawers I mentioned. Look, yeah. if you would ask me before I read this article, I'm like, heck yeah, you have to. What are you crazy? Look, I'm I'm all I finish it. I'll put at least one coat on it. I'm just saying this is an interesting read. Take it for what it's worth. You're yeah. not hurting any hurting anything but putting finish on it. I do it. Is that a, is that a published article or a book? Or it's a, yeah, it's, I got a link to it. It's a published article in Woodshop News by Flexner. Okay. Is that it's something we can put in the show notes on the yeah. website? So if, yes, I'll, say, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, it's yeah. a good read. He's yeah. you know He talks about the history and when that started and when they started recommending it and why you shouldn't, you don't need to. Look, there's not, it, it hurts nothing doing it. He's just saying you don't necessarily need to. But yeah. I still do. But, but in, in direct response to Dan's question, my, my answer to him would be yes. I'd put finish on both sides of a slab, especially yeah. one that, that thick and that wide. So Yeah, I would too. I would and, because it's walnut. I love seeing putting finish on walnut. But you make a good point, Guy. Like if it's if it's a chest of drawers and I'm construct I'm not putting finish on them and I'm not doing it. Yeah, you're making a, a uh, something with kind of not a, it's not a chest of drawers. What 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 is it, Lee? That you're making right dresser, now? just like D- a double dresser. dresser. dresser yeah. yeah, you're not fin- putting finish on the inside of that dresser. Mm-mm. Nope. Nope. Well, nope. I tell you what, Dan, you got some excellent answers on that one. You got some bang for your buck on that one. Hope that helps. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'll put this out there. Look, you're not gonna hurt anything putting finish on both sides. No. I like it. Just do it. If you don't want to, don't. But we like That's it. That's fair. So we recommend it just because mm-hmm. it's cool. We're all doing it. All right. I think that'll do <laughs> it for this cool show. Kids are doing it. That's right. All of the cool kids are finishing both sides and the edges. <laughs> so if you don't do it, don't talk to me. No, I'm just joking. Ooh. No, I'm just playing. I think that'll do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through our podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. Click the contact link on there, fill out the form, let us know your name, and then we will answer your questions. Or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. Send us your questions. We need them. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And if you can, we're coming up on 100. We've been doing this for four years. Please share this with a friend. Help us grow the podcast. 
Um, we hope it's awesome enough that you would want to share it with somebody and uh, hopefully they would enjoy it as well. So mm-hmm. uh, you can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Hui, where are they going to find you? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are there. Guy, where can you find? Where can we find you? Uh, just search for Guy's Woodshop on your social media and you should find me. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks for 100. See you. See you in a couple. Bye. Bye.